What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, giving you another week of what's going on in pop culture. My name is Pat Sheehan, joined by my co-host, whose screen I'm looking at and has a gun pointed directly at him. It's Dave Martin Swagger. Dave, how you doing, man? Oh, it's on site with Disney right now. We're taking aim <laughs> at the uh, at the man, at the machine. Scarlett Johansson, of course. Yeah, as Dave's alluding to, we're going to be talking about the Disney versus ScarJo controversy that has come up this week, as well as some other news that's popped up over the weekend. We have quite a few musical projects and quite a few movies to get to this week. Movies are back, man. Can't wait to talk about Green Knight. But if you want to listen to all these, then make sure you get all the podcasts in your earballs when it drops. Hit that subscribe if you're listening on youtube.com slash nostalgiapod or Go to soundcloud.com slash nostalgiapod to listen any way you want to, because we're everywhere. Dave, you alluded to the Disney ScarJo developments, we'll say. You know, it, we, when we reviewed Black Widow, we kind of said this movie came out way later than it should have, and they really missed an opportunity, and now ScarJo's gone. And we thought maybe, it, you know, quiet exit out of the MCU, but it seems right. like she's not going out without a fight, huh? No, no, uh, quite publicized out in the open lawsuit over her Black Widow contract as an actor in regards to the release of the film, specifically not having a exclusive theatrical release, because of course it was also available day and day on Disney Premiere, uh, Disney Plus Premiere Access. So very interesting, right? And I think the <laughs> the immediate like observation I had, and I feel like everyone I talked to or saw had was that Disney didn't have this figured out like from the jump. Like, cause we remember what happened with Warner brothers, like Warner brothers took care of everything when they put their whole slate of 2021 movies day and day on HBO max. Uh, I think the number they paid was about 250 million in back end deals to directors and actors to, basically make up for changing their contracts because the contracts are set up largely around uh, like escalators with box office returns, a big part of how the top end talent gets paid. And like, you knew, you remember like Gal Gadot and Patty Jenkins, they got fucking paid up front because Wonder Woman's box yeah, office man. was getting its legs cut off. I think Denzel Washington for little things, Will Smith for the upcoming King Richard This happened a lot with Warner and Disney, I guess, didn't do this it's uh kind of strange now whether like this lawsuit is like completely successful on scarlet's front like there's i guess there's a lot of debate about that but quite interesting to see it uh so public right yeah you know i think that was one of the things that was most surprising to me about all this and you know it's kind of a tertiary point off of your point which is i i, I could imagine that there's a lot of like negotiations regarding you know between agents and you know these production companies regarding compensation figuring out all that stuff like you talked about all the money on the back end to smooth things over i'm surprised disney let something like this get this public you know this is, feels like a really not a good look for them um and i mean in the scheme of things this will probably be just a footnote in this whole releasing on the same day and date as the theatrical release on you know a streaming platform um but you know already some critics of it i could see 
this becoming a, a you know a point of contention for people moving forward and just more ammo for the not releasing on streaming as well for some people right yeah that kind of just goes into just general like theatrical strategy uh critiques but reading the reporting around the scarlet uh lawsuit apparently there are other similar types of things kind of like secretly going on in arbitration between other parties with other actors or other people and now there's talk that other disney people such as perhaps uh emma stone of cruella uh weighing options as well um so i don't think it's over by any means and yeah i mean like I, it's also funny too, like you, like you see some people, it's like oh Scarlett Johansson, he's not always been the most popular public figure due to comments she's made or uh, being cast in roles that perhaps were or definitely were not like the fit for her. But it's kind of like besides the point, right? It's like you don't have to side with management here, side with the labor. It doesn't <laughs> actually matter that Scarlett is already a wealthy person, and like Disney got a lot of flack from uh, Hollywood community, CAA, like they they, they like clapped back publicly at Scarlett, public publicizing her upfront salary, blaming Scarlett for doing this during the pandemic, all this kind of like like worker shaming stuff. It's pretty pretty poor taste to me. So yeah, I'm I'm just I'm obviously rooting for Scarlett, but I also uh kind of get the old sentiment. You, like I don't have any skin in the game of theatrical right. of course, but I just generally support it and we keep seeing the numbers bear out that uh you are affected at least tangentially when you do day and date. Right. And I, I mean, anyone that's listened to the podcast at all before knows we want movie theaters to thrive and succeed. Um, and also, you know, I think the talent should get as much as they can in these situations. So um, I'm interested to see, you know, you mentioned the possibility of Emma Stone potentially taking action. Um, you know, maybe this will you know, get more of that push to not have this, you know, same, same date release on streaming. Uh, I would, uh, maybe we'll, maybe we'll be talking about it more. I'm, I'm not hopeful about it just because these huge corporations usually find a way to squash these things and keep their mm-hmm. MO moving forward. But um, I would love it if this became a thing. Like, <laughs> I think it'd be great. Yeah. So. One last note too is the end of June news broke that Scarlett Johansson was attached to produce a Tower of Terror film at Disney. Wasn't clear whether she'd also star in that or not, but she was definitely going to be producing it. I have to imagine that is uh, much more up in the air than it was like six weeks ago. Yeah. Also, also factoring I mean, in Jungle Cruise, uh, its success also being up in the air, another uh, adaptation of a famous theme park ride. So a lot, a lot of things left to, left to find out. Yeah, I'm tired of the theme park rides becoming movies. We'll, we'll talk about that. And, and there's only been like one so far. So uh, we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. But why don't we uh, move on to another controversy that unfortunately has popped up over the last week or so. And that's the baby. And uh, if you're watching on YouTube, the baby is behind Dave and behind me is Lollapalooza. And why is that? Well, this past weekend, Lollapalooza had the baby as not the main headliner, but I think he was like one of the top two or three build for their Sunday closing. And Sunday morning said, uh, you know, Palooza was founded on diversity and acceptance, blah, blah, blah. Because of that, the baby will not be performing. And this, of course, is based on 
the baby's comments at Rolling Loud. Um, was that last the weekend before, I believe? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he where he made um comments, you know, told people to come to the front if they don't have one of those deadly diseases like HIV or AIDS, or if you weren't, you know, giving people uh, if you weren't another guy giving people blowjobs in the parking lot, those sorts of very bigoted and uneducated uh, yeah. comments about the LGBTQ community um, and then doubled down, you know, releasing a music video that, uh, you know, kind of mocked the controversy around that really showed a lack of understanding of the, of the criticisms against him and why saying something like that is really not okay. Um, and so Lollapalooza said, you're out, replace him with young thug and G Herbo and then this morning, uh, Governor's Ball, you know, we're recording on Monday, August 2nd. Governor's Ball also said that the baby would not be performing mm. um, based on these comments. And uh, prior to recording today, the baby did release an apology via his Instagram. Dave, what do you think about this whole controversy? Like, what do you make of it? Yeah, yeah, just one completely ancillary note. Why wasn't G Herbo already performing at Lollapalooza this year? A Chicagoan, a very famous Chicagoan. That was a kind of weird thing to see. I was like, wait, but you added G Herbo? He wasn't already <laughs> going to be there? Like his fellow city men wouldn't want to go see him? Like, it's fucking weird. Anyway. Uh, I wonder if they already had him as like a surprise guest for that day. And then okay, they were just perhaps. like, okay, yeah. well. Also, know. you know you fucked up when they're picking Thug as your replacement. Thug is not someone <laughs> who is immune from controversy either. Let's not forget. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I mean, ultimately, this is kind of just another entry in, like, a larger sad story, and I'm sure we're going to have more of this in the future, because it's the way we are as a society. And it's also coming at an unfortunate time, because it's kind of almost directly linked with uh, reactions to Little Nas X's Industry Baby music video. And it's just all kind of coalescing as one. And like homophobia in music, homophobia in culture, rap specifically, not new. And like I said, we'll continue to see it. But the thing with DaBaby, I think the big lesson here was the lack of remorse when you are called out on that mm-hmm. is where, where they're going to get you. People will give you that chance. Like there's all this culture war stuff about cancel culture, but you don't actually, nothing actually happens to you when you just admit to what you did and come up with a PR apology and try and move on. But DeBaby didn't do that for a whole week. Like you say, he doubled down. Dualipa was very critical of him. Yep, he, Elton John. Yeah, uh, DeBaby in turn was liking tweets critical of Dua and stuff like that. Like He was completely doubled down on this for a long time. I think that actually shows that it's like not just like any kind of lapse, but it's like a, like a, like cockiness, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that that probably is what pisses off the industry people more than the actual homophobia, um, whether that's good or bad, you know. But um, yeah, it, it, obviously it's it sucks. And when you ever see people too, it's like, oh well, you know, the babies from the hood. That's just how it is. Like, there's not gay people in the hood. Like, there's just no, I, there's no good like response to it, you know. And it doesn't mean we have to completely vilify the baby forever, but now he needs to actually prove that he's not you know a shitty dude and like yeah. i remember this kind of came up kind of recently with migos in regards to uh, i love mcconan when mcconan came out and stuff like that but it's a lot of work to be done and um 
yeah, definitely like unexpected because he was just kind of going off at his show. He was not asked about this. He was doing it on his own. It like it was something he had to get off his chest, you know, fairly deeply rooted. Um, and that's sad. Yeah. You know, I think it, sad is probably the word that has come to mind most for me when I'm kind of trying to think of my reaction to it, mostly because, um, you know, obviously it's like, like you said, it's like a stray bullet that, you know, this, this community that's already marginalized and underserved and has been, um, incredibly resilient, uh, you know, facing some really, uh, you know, harsh political stances and still fighting for those rights. You know, mm-hmm. it seems like there's always the, the risk that there's a, uh, you know, political decisions that may impact that community in a negative way, whether that's transgender rights or, you know, it's not that long ago that uh, gay people were given the right to marry, which is just insane to think about that. You know, that was probably within that. That was within the last decade, I believe. That was Obama presidency when that happened. Crazy. (laughs) So um, to be like still here. And like you said, there's a lack of education. There's uh, obviously there's some bigoted views that he attributes to, or people have been attributing to maybe his community growing up, which I don't necessarily believe in. All right, I don't know if I totally buy, I guess. Um, I just hope that other artists take note of this um, mm-hmm. and are at least more thoughtful. There's no way every artist is going to be an ally, uh, it, whether uh, it's a true ally or a public ally mm-hmm. for these communities. But like you said, you just didn't even have to say it. Like, <laughs> and it's the sort of thing where... Um, he wasn't going to change. He wasn't going to come out and apologize unless his bag was affected. It seems like, and that's what makes this even more of a, of a bad look. Is that he only it seems like apologized because these festivals started pulling out on him, and probably other festivals were telling him that his spot was in jeopardy. So, um, really hoping he takes this to heart, and that other artists do too, because it's just totally unwarranted. Yeah, I mean, and looking forward, um, actually, I guess. Looking back, I've seen some critics. It's like I think debate debate when he was still on the warpath was like posting screenshots of artists that have homophobic lyrics. And it's like yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of that history. I think yeah. it's just kind of where society's at a point now where it's like moving forward. There's not a lack of tolerance. It's we're not in mm-hmm. this like authoritarian state where anyone who's ever said a fucked up thing, uh, is done. Obviously, that's not how it is. But you need to understand the times we're in, and the times we're in include Lil Nas X as a pop superstar who is not afraid to show who he is. And on the converse, you have someone like T.I. equating being public about your uh, sexuality somehow being equated to being public with your personal homophobia on DaBaby's part. There's like so much more work to be done. And I think Lil Nas X is... uh, you know, not not necessarily a fair burden to lay on him, but that's just what's going to happen because he is very confident in who he is, and he seems to be pushing things forward because it's like the next stage of like the sexuality really being public during this time. Obviously, Elton John was we was we were so far far removed from uh, what society was yeah. like when Elton John was in his heyday, right? And mm-hmm. Tyler the Creator is not you know super public and commenting on who he is and. Young M.A. is 
quite masculine and like almost you know treated like anyone else in hip-hop a little nas x is who he is and i think that's going to mm-hmm. continue to push things forward um but th- there's going to be more bumps like this unless the pr teams really like hunger down and say like hey even if you do slip up you can't be a f- unremorseful asshole yeah because like i think that that's really where you turn people off oh completely um yeah very unfortunate um probably not something we're going to be talking about too much more at least not in regards to the baby if it obviously if it comes up with other artists we would but um why don't we move on to some music and uh get this this bad taste out of our mouth here dave and why don't we start with skepta and really uh get the bad taste out of our mouth because we talked about skepta last year with insomnia and uh i think we really liked insomnia right I don't know if we actually reviewed Insomnia. That's we his collab. We, we, I listened to it. I know that. The collab project with Chip and Young Ads. But it does have perhaps my favorite Skepta song ever, Mains, which is just say, that's on the playlist. Grime song. Yeah, it was definitely on the playlist last year, Spotify, best of 2020. That song rules. But we definitely reviewed Skepta's last Ignorance uh, full length album, 2019's Ignorance is Bliss, his fifth album, the uh, Grime and, uh, legend, of course back now with a surprise ep we only had a few days notice for this one all in yeah and, and it's you know a true ep it's like 20 minutes five five tracks yep but i gotta say <laughs> these five tracks just absolutely fire uh i i thought this was a like really really strong start to finish each song kind of brought a different feel to it but all of it yeah. felt very much skepta very much uh very much just his like personality shines through. And I gotta say him and Kid Cudi, we heard them on Cudi's, uh, you know, album, man, the moon three, yeah. uh, out earlier this year on the track, uh, uh show December, last December. Sorry. Wow. Is that long ago? Jeez. Well, almost. This um, year. yeah. Um, uh, on show out, but I think them on peace of mind, is just like absolutely an incredible, incredible duo together they, they sound great yeah that song is actually a revelation on skeptis part because skeptis sounds like travis fucking scott mm-hmm. and it's like awesome like it when i was listening to it the first time i'm like wait is this the cutty part oh no this is the skepta part holy shit you know <laughs> uh insane honestly uh yeah there's this all any p is just a textbook example of the less is more like mm-hmm. there's not, not not no no skip on this there's not nothing no fat here this is just a tight five piece and it's awesome. And I've ran it back several times, yep. you know, and I, I fucking love it. Honestly, like it was unexpected. I was like, you know, I wasn't like thinking, Oh, I'm really gearing up for the next skept album. Like it hasn't been that long. He's been around. Of course we got insomnia last year, like you said, but to get this and have him showcase all this range on only five tracks. It's so exciting. You know, Skepta has been the game a long time, but still showing something new, really fun. Yeah, especially, you know, I think the best example of the range on this is you go from peace of mind, which, like you said, is this cutty Travis Scott, just like banger of a song. And then it goes into Nirvana with Jay Balvin on the next track, which is this more like smooth, like island sounding track and just really you glide through it. You feel weightless. It's just really impressive to go from something that like rattling and like 
uh, I don't know, almost kind of like mind numbing to then just something so smooth and airy. It's a really mm-hmm. cool back to back. And I, those, those two tracks stood out to me probably most out of all five, but I, I agree. I don't think there's a skip on this. They're all really strong tracks. Yeah. I've been going back to the first track of Bellator the most, just because I think the chorus is just really, really tight. And it's like a, like a slight change of pace from his verses. It's just a fire song. I'm a pop smoke and I'm a do it in Dior. Love it. So good. <laughs> yeah, man. Skepta just continues to operate at a really, really high level. And I mean, we kind of know that, like you said, grime legends, London legend yeah. at this point, but just the fact that he continues to put out so much heat, it's like mm-hmm. it's kind of underrated still almost. He is underrated. Uh, like, like just about everyone in the UK still is to Americans, but mm-hmm. I forget what song this was on me lit like this. I don't remember, but he was like something about like, not, not on the conscious shit, but he can still deliver without being like super, like super introspective, you know, like we're, we're just a week removed from uh, Dave's second album, which is very different, you know, in terms of it's uh, stark, frank lyricism and uh, personal messages with skeptics. Like, no, I'm not, I'm not doing that. I'm doing something a lot different. Perhaps you could say it's simpler, but it's just as effective and really fun still. Yeah. Skepta is great. Uh, definitely check out this EP. It's 20 minutes and I think you'll probably run it back pretty quickly. Like we did. Um, why don't we move on though, from Skepta to someone that is out of retirement, Dave logic. Mm. Um, logic is <laughs> interesting person in, uh, interesting artist in the time of our podcasting because he's really i think um kind of run the gamut from dropping some really really bad projects things that i don't know if we will ever go back and listen to to some that were i think surprisingly like really strong and things that we we really liked and we've talked about him way more than i ever expected to (laughs) on this podcast um but here we are. He's out of retirement after his last album, um, which was what last year, uh, about a year to the day, almost. Yeah, late July, no pressure. twenty twenty. No pressure. The retirement album, and yeah, we've talked about him a lot because he doesn't take a year off. He's released something every year, including the year after he retired. And I, man, like I just. I was so frustrated to see these early singles start showing up, partially because I wasn't impressed with anything. And then to see this Bobby Tarantino 3 is coming at the end of the week, guys. And like, you know, like a few weeks ago, he does the MJ letter, I'm back. And it's just, I just, just let out a, a huge groan because No Pressure was great. It was yeah. logic at his absolute best, all his best qualities in terms of production choices actually laying it down with real real bars and like thoughtful songs and he like he earned all that hoopla he made about retiring and you know mm-hmm. want to spend more time with his family hang it up blah 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 and what we said at the time the odds of him actually retiring were basically zero we can look at the yeah. history of rappers retiring it's especially he's only like in his early 30s like there's no chance he's actually retiring but still i thought it would go more than a year and <laughs> We very quickly got the uh, beat tape he did under a different name, on, which is out on Dat Piff, came out in January, and then get some singles popping up. And 
towards the end of Bobby Tarantino 3, you actually get the most interesting part about this is when he's just talking. And he's like, yeah, um, just kind of decided to make this, brought the brought the homies out, we threw, threw, threw everything together, blah, blah, blah. And then we're, we're making this album. Or, or did he call it the final album? I don't even remember. It'll be my so. last album on Def Jam is what he says. Mm-hmm. So he came back to make Bobby Tarantino 3 and then this upcoming album because of his Def Jam contract. So the whole premise of no pressure was a fucking fallacy because his Def Jam contract wasn't even done. Like, why wouldn't you make two throwaway Bobby Tarantino tapes and then do no pressure when it's your, your final album? Like, he couldn't even retire for a year. He had to honor his contract still. Like, are you fucking serious? <laughs> Dave, you seem pretty upset. Let it out, man. Just let it all out. This is well, a safe, Also, safe the tape here. sucks. That's the problem. Like, you don't like it? I don't like it at all. I think it's, I think it's trash. Like this is this is right up there with his worst shit. I think the only yeah. thing that the only thing that's redeemable about it in terms of it, comparing it to his other bad projects is that it, it's not like this huge swing and a miss the way like everybody was or something. But this is like Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, his uh, fifth album, just completely think- nondescript, boring, nothing you want to listen to again, completely fades away. Because like we said when we talked about No Pressure, like we said when we talked about. Um, Crash of a Dangerous Mind, when he does more mainstream, trap-indebted, contemporary hip-hop trends, he doesn't stand out. It is not his strength, and other people just do it better than him. And that's exactly what we got once again about Tarantino 3. So, yeah, I think it sucks, but the whole the whole premise of it just pissed me off. I'm really frustrated. <laughs> I, I love hearing how frustrated you are, though, only because... Um... I agree. I didn't think that this was a standout tape. I don't necessarily think this was really bad, I guess. I found it to be a pretty easy listen. I think I had a couple of moments that stood out, but you know, I don't think this is an album that's going to make any year-end list or even be remembered that it came out, but inoffensive in a lot of ways. However, I, I do find it pretty funny that you kind of knew that the retirement wasn't real, and then you're like, he even fucked up the fake retirement is like basically what you're saying, which is really funny. Um, yeah, you know, in listening to this and in thinking about, you know, uh, no pressure, no pressure was such a love letter to like his influences yeah. and the way he just kind of like unabashedly like bit off, you know, Kanye uh, tracks, Jay Z tracks, things yeah. like that. Tribe. It, yeah, yeah, just made it really fun and like, uh, wow, this is such a thoughtful, well-produced, has a great through line to it. Just a lot of it made sense. And this just did feel like I'm just putting this out to put it out kind of thing. And like and nothing on here really stands out. And it's funny because the two moments that I think stand out the most, one, Cynthia Erivo fucking crushes it on this. I love C- I loved her. And she was a breath of fresh air because I was like, OK, I need a little bit of a break from logic. And then, uh, what's the one? Get Up, where he, like, uh, pretty much, like, this is a Kanye song. He's like, this is, uh, or no, maybe it's not that one. I think it might be later on. Call Me, maybe. It might be the one I'm thinking of. But he's like, this is uh, the workout plan, too. You know, whatever. I was like, okay, uh, sure. Like, it, it, it sounded pretty good. So uh, I'll go with those two tracks, but it's not good that that one track that stood up second most, uh, I don't even remember the name of it. So <laughs> just, it's, yeah. it's nothing, you know? Yeah, it's nothing. Like, just being more specific, vaccine. 
Just listen oh, to the hook on terrible. the vaccine. It's just really, really, really terrible. And then uh, My Way, the hook there, he's singing. Uh, shocker, but he's not good at that. We already knew this from Supermarket, the companion to his book. Like, it's just not his strength. But he just can't help himself when he's not looking back. When he's looking back, it's great. Even Young Sinatra 4, uh, which was not like his most successful album by any means. But that was still great to listen to because it was just old school boom bap shit, you know? And it was rapping. It was actual bars and shit. This is just so nondescript and boring. And I, I, I'm just baffled that this is what the comeback listen is, honestly. It's, uh, yeah, it's tough, man. And you know, I was looking, I was looking today on uh, Billboard. Uh, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind just got char- uh, certified gold, uh, like a few days ago. Young Sinatra four, like, like you look, you look at everything. He's not, he was not selling as much as he did at his peak of the Incredible True Story. Everybody peak with one eight hundred and all that. He um, he's had some valleys the past few years as an artist, mm-hmm. despite having big first weeks because he has a big fan base. So it's like, yeah, you know, I'm not surprised to see that people aren't going back to the songs because the songs just aren't as good as the other stuff, you know? Yeah. Then again, by the way, I don't think he cares that much because he's very successful. Yeah. The the song I was thinking of was God Might Judge, and that one does sound very much like a Kanye track. You know, it has like the, the tuned up vocals in the background running through and whatnot. And uh, the track... Get up, I thought was pretty. It was pretty nice, just kind of like dreamy, airy, light. But again, you don't listen to logic for that that stuff. Like you listen to, you know, I don't know, Claro for that. I guess so. Um, I don't know. I I think logic is just kind of in this place where his projects are very hit or miss, and we might be getting to the point where maybe we're just going to stop reviewing every single logic project. Cause it doesn't seem like it's really worth it at this point. So, and again, it's like, feels like this was done out of necessity due to his label contract. And that's just yep. frustrating. Cause it's like, please just put off the retirement. If you have to get some shit out, you know, on, the, con- on, on the positive side, I will say, uh, end of June, he put out the YS collection volume one, which is a series of, young Sinatra mixtape songs of his from the early 2010s that he was able to get the samples cleared and put on streaming. And there's a lot of good stuff on there, like Man of the Year, uh, 5AM, Ballin', All I Do, which is his first big hit. So if you're interested in the old logic, when he was probably the most exciting, uh, go check that out, because it's now much easier to listen to if you didn't have those mixtapes from back in the day. Dave, the house is burning. And Isaiah Rashad is back. Uh, been a while. Five years since his last official album release, yeah. The Sun's Tirade. He really popped off, what, like 2012, if I'm remembering? Um, he had that first single with, like, Juicy J. I mean, he, he signed to TD in 13, and Sylvia Demo came out in 2014. So I wasn't, I, I had no idea who it was until he signed to TD. He was the... Him and SZA were the second wave of TDE signings after the core Black Hippie guys, and it was a big, kind of like a big to do, you know. It's like Isaiah Rashad, really talented rapper out of Tennessee. You can make some connections to Kendrick in terms of his artistry. It makes sense that he signed the TDE. Here he is, and there's a lot more hype about him than than SZA when they both signed around the same time. 
SZA took a long, long time to kind of get that TD buzz going until Control came out, you know, three years later. But Xavier Shot, I feel like, really hit the ground running when Sylvia Demo came out. Um, and then he had Sun started a few years later, which was I mean, the long way to debut. And then he just disappeared, honestly. And uh-huh. we know now that that was due to uh, some struggles with substance abuse. Alcoholism runs in his family. And he was quite frank about that. And, you know, I think we were kind of unaware of what was going on because uh, album delays and uh, confusion about future music is not out of place in the TDE camp. We all know that well uh, across the whole spectrum of the label. So we just thought Isaiah Rashad was like anyone else. It's like, oh, well, you know, they run a, they're on a hard, hard, they run a hard, tight ship there at uh, TDE. Top Dog's not going to let anything mediocre come out. So one day, then you don't know. No, actually, no. Isaiah Rashad had to do some soul searching, and now he's finally back with that second album. But um, I mean, were you like a big fan of that early stuff? No, no, not not very much. You know, I I think uh, this was probably the first time I really like listened to one of his albums. And the thing is, I feel like for some reason, maybe it's because I've I've ran back control so much. I mm. feel like he's been more present than he has been. I also feel like his name is just like a name I'm very aware of. You know, obviously he was on Sizz's album Control 2017 on Pretty Little Birds. But, you know, even just looking through like the the features he's had since his last album. There's a, there's a couple, but really like not much that we have reviewed and kind of these like I I want to say no names, but people who are obviously like on the come up here, um, childish major back in 2017. Yeah. Did a track oh, yeah. with him, someone like that, you know. Um, l- last year he did a track with Woody Smalls um, on on his album. Like the, he just kind of drops into these projects, and uh, I was really impressed with this man. I thought the house is burning was really strong. Um, you know, it, it, I think. It, the first half was I probably enjoyed a little bit more than the second half. It trailed off by the end. You know, it is, you know, 16 tracks and like, well, I think 16 tracks, like 46 minutes long or something like that. But I thought I was really impressed with what I heard in the beginning. Were you tuned into him from the, from the get? You said like oh, 13, 14, right? Come on. Was I tuned into him, please? <laughs> um, I, I was there when he, I remember when he got signed, of course, listen to Sylvia demo like songs like R.I.P. Kevin Miller, Shot You Down. Those are the highlights for me off that. But I didn't really like Sun's Tirade. Sun's Tirade has a lot of fans. And because of that, this second Isaiah Rashad full length was hotly anticipated. I wasn't anticipating it to that degree. Certainly very interested in it as a his status as a TD artist. But like, I'm, it's not like I listened to a lot of those early, early cuts that I like all the time or really at all. So like, I didn't have like large expectations and listening to this uh the house is burning it's still kind of more of what he's been doing i think his rapping ability is just kind of on the upward curve but i still don't love it the way i love stuff from q or j-rock or kendrick of course and i think that's just kind of like the flavor of isaiah's rapping say rapping like this is what it is but like it's still really good and the production's very um thoughtful and there is a lot of really witty wordplay and introspective lyricism especially because we know as zay has a lot to reflect on on this album 
but it's it's still not like my favorite my favorite hip hop. So yeah, like seeing all the hype, like like uh, was it uh, the song R.I.P. Young was getting a mm-hmm. lot of love on Twitter. I like the song, but like it's not like one of my favorite rap songs of the year or anything, you know. So I think it's more just kind of appreciation for the craft more than like like being a big fan of the work. Yeah, R.I.P. Young was one of the tracks that I wrote down right away. Um, you know, my first listen, I played it back. It's really, I feel like the. Uh, it's like the slowed down track, but he just flows really effortlessly over it. And it just really stood out to me as like an early favorite. And then, you know, just kind of like jumping around, there's there's quite a, a few features on here. Um, you know, you mentioned J-Rock and J-Worthy on like True Story. Um, but a, a very similar song, a couple tracks after R.I.P. Young, Headshots almost the exact same beat, but also a track that stood out to me with uh, for our the locals. Is that for the locals? I don't want to mispronounce that, but um, I thought that was also another standout near the second half, you know, like SZA comes in with black and, and then it kind of, I felt like kind of fizzled out, but the first half I found pretty interesting for the most part. I thought it was really strong. Yeah, yeah. At the end, I like 9-3 Freestyle, just as the name suggests, is kind of a simple song. But, like, that's the thing. It's like when he, and like he talked about this, he did a lot of press for this album. You know, he's like, I'll have some more, you know, quieter stuff, and then I'll do some bangers. But, like, the Isaiah Rashad definition of banger is just not my banger cup of tea. Like, his bangers are from the garden with Uzi and I actually think Uzi sounds pretty good on this, but like the hook is like really, uh, really boring. What is it? Um, came through bussin or whatever it is. just repetitive, you know, Something like, like that, yeah. with Duke Deuce. Again, I like Duke Deuce, but like, it's kind of just not that cool. You know, I think it's all in headshots, as you said, is where he's at his best. That reminds me a lot of shot you down off Sylvia demo, mm. uh, that, that hook combined with the rapping combined with the verses, sounds really good i think that is probably where i would hone in on like what kind of songs i like from Isaiah shot so it definitely requires uh a lot of time with the album though because of the lyricism and stuff you know mm-hmm. but to me i wasn't like immediately grabbed except for a few songs so like i said just kind of appreciate it more than love it yeah you know i, I think that's kind of thing it's it's nice i think to have him back and working and absolutely i think uh probably better things to come but still a a fairly strong showing for his first album five Mm -hmm. years so and and um, i I do i definitely like him more than sun's tirade which i found kind of dull honestly so he's he's improving he's going and just happy he's back more than anything else why don't we switch gears from rap to um i don't know what is this soft pop yeah 80s rock i guess jack antonoff well let's start there one of the most sought after collaborators and pop music you know i was gonna say especially with you know female pop is it is it exclusively female pop i'm trying to think of a it is almost exclusively female pop right now taylor swift lord claro lana del rey lana yep lana shows up on this album Take the sadness out of Saturday night. Uh, don't like the the title of this uh, album. Um, not, not necessarily anything against it, but just long. Um, mm-hmm. 
And you know, it, also it, Saturday is one of the days you're not sad. If anything, right? Take the sadness out of Sunday night. You know, yeah. Sunday scary. Take, take the scaries out of Sunday night. There we go. That would have been a great title. There we go. We're workshopping. This. Hire you, us. You can take that. We got this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that that that's trademarked, by the way. So uh, if you do change the title, <laughs> we require royalties. Um, yeah, you know, we talked about bleachers a few years ago yeah. when they dropped. A while ago. Uh, gone now yeah 2017 wow four years and i I think the take was i really liked it uh i still go back to gone now fairly regularly you know i especially like those first like five tracks um i think it has a really strong opening and then Mm. some of it in the second half really doesn't work for me um but you know if especially when you think about where he came from guitarists for fun uh you know that first album strange desire i really ride for it but i think people probably only remember two tracks from it uh roller coaster and i want to get better so if you're getting a couple of strong tracks out of a bleachers album i would consider that a success and that's why i look at take this out of saturday night and i say pretty weak showing i'd say overall but i think there's like maybe three tracks most of them are singles that i'm going to probably go back to and play again Mm-hmm. And I'll I'll take that as like a small win. It, he's he's more of a producer at this point than a creator. That's right just where he is. And also yeah. because he's so omnipresent as a producer, like we're always talking about his work. The fact that his solo work is middling is like it's not like a grand disappointment because we're always talking about new stuff he's doing. Right. You know. So I, I don't. I, I'm in kind of the same boat. There's like a few tracks that I think are noteworthy off this. The rest is kind of blah. And hey, that's okay. It's it's whatever. <laughs> this is this is this is found money to me from Jack Antonoff, if you ask me. Yeah, uh I, I would agree. Um and I think the tracks that probably stood out most for me, Chinatown, a single that's been out since I think Christmas or around right. there. With um yeah. And and that part where Bruce Springsteen comes in is like the real like moment in you know especially the early part of this album. Um, how dare you want more i think is pretty fun it has like a really strong ending to it where like the yeah. saxophone takes mm-hmm. over very like 80s sound and then um stop making this hurt has a very similar feel and th- those, those are the three are for songs. you as well <laughs> yep uh and other than that i mean literally having big life and secret life right next to each other and Lana del Rey might be the most forgettable it, it, like where is she on that track i don't even know if i remember listening yeah. to like hearing her and if i remember right there's other background vocals and background production work from his collaborators like annie clark who we didn't mention um is also involved in this but lana actually mm. gets the feature other people didn't um but yeah i agree it's like kind of missed it if, if if she was there um but yeah, yeah that I, is I, interesting uh yeah. sorry annie clark is on 91 the lead track right. Yeah, I think you, you nailed it, though, in terms of the noteworthy tracks. Um, How Dare You Want More, you mentioned saxophone. I really like those drums. It's like, like the hand clap mm-hmm. percussion. Yeah. Really, really notable. And then Stop Making This Hurt. That's just really up-tempo, uh, catchy, kind of reminds me of mm-hmm. I Want to Get Better, like in terms of yep. like the bleachers mold. So, and the background piano on that hook, like really, really catchy. Well done. Yeah, that was <laughs> that was actually what I wrote down, too, is this sounds like I want to get better a little bit stop making this hurt right yeah it's just like okay you you can hear the crowds at a festival singing that 
and that also just kind of speaks to like Jack Antonoff's like creative brain where he like mm-hmm. he, I guess this this also is kind of how I think about Charlie Puth sometimes is like these two guys clearly just like see the math in their brain it's like okay we can make the really catchy pop song by doing xyz and yep. I don't like doing it all the time but sometimes I'm just gonna fucking do it you know <laughs> and like I feel like I feel like for them it's effortless you know just oh. as like super producers and writers totally uh i'm i i really like jack Antonoff. i I mean i think it's his production work is undeniable i think his work with bleachers and fun is a little bit more uh you can be a little more critical of that but uh i I just think he he knows what he's doing and uh i usually i'll probably listen to this a few more times and i'm sure i'll have another track or two that i really like but yeah three three tracks we like we'll put one of them on our playlist which we haven't mentioned yet nostalgia best of 2021 on spotify follow that share that listen to it to stay up to date on all the most current music and dave i think we're also going to be putting maybe one maybe multiple billy eilish tracks on this because uh she's back with her sophomore album um i mean what happier a than ever yeah happier than ever sorry and uh just thinking about where like what she accomplished in her first album right she won multiple grammys off that um including album of the year i believe Uh, she swept Uh, the big five she won five the the five top type awards yes yeah and uh, when we all fall asleep where do we go from 2019 which we reviewed check that out nostalgia or nostalgia pod on youtube um what were your expectations going into this i guess you know that's a great question because Billy's been very omnipresent ever since mm-hmm. then. Let's not forget that the, the the following Grammys, the Grammys that just happened in 2021, Billy won Record of the Year again. Yeah, for everything I wanted, a loose song, uh, a big surprise to her and Phineas on the broadcast. Big surprise to me and you because it was not <laughs> a song that I'll speak for me, not a song I, I liked all that much. I and to it much. Yeah, and that that's the thing is since uh her landmark breakthrough album you had a few loose tracks you had my future which is back on this album you had everything i wanted which wins the grammy but isn't on this you had the james bond song no writing on the wall which already won a grammy even though no time to die the movie isn't even out yet (laughs) all three of those songs have a key thing in common they are they are soft they are low tempo (laughs) they are quiet they are different yeah. at the very least from what she blew up from. Mm-hmm. And then we got that single, uh, Therefore I Am, which got that uh, the video in the mall. And that is much more reminiscent of like bad guy production. I think that's one of her best yep. tracks. So I didn't really know what to expect. And unfortunately to me, it's a lot lighter than I wanted. But yeah. It also makes a lot of sense, right? Like this is still completely written and produced solely by Billy and Phineas, still a family affair. And Billy is very open and honest about her, her experience since the last album. So it kind of makes sense that this is what we got because she's doing a really good job handling uh, mega fame and how that's completely changed her life. And, you know, that comes out and fits and starts throughout the the lyrics across the album. But there's just some decisions on the album that I just don't like as much that it's like, well, you know, 
I understand why we're here, but like my strange addiction is just way more fun to listen to off the last album, you know? And like, mm-hmm. I like therefore I am that's the bad guy this time around, but like where there's no office sample, like there's nothing like except for one key exception. There's not a lot of like out there production choices or vocal ticks. And I even think the vocal mix at times is like intentionally like turned down. Like it's like really like soft, like low volume vocals at times. And mm-hmm. it's, it, it's like dreamy, I guess you want to be charitable, but like, yeah, like woozy. Yeah. 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 So it, it's, it's definitely it definitely a change, right? It's it, you know what it is. It's like she made an album of Ocean Eyes, and mm-hmm. Ocean Eyes that was the big hit on, on SoundCloud when she was fourteen. People love that song, but I don't know if I need need fifteen of them. You know, I I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. It's definitely a, a low tempo, like electric pop type sound. I do think there's some fun production choices you know a song like oxytocin that's the one really stands out yeah where it's like this like i don't even know how would you describe the way that it comes in and out it's like a it's like a electronic like cutting out almost every yeah. other second it's like a it's like, that's production you would hear at a trance show yes. in europe that is yeah. immediately where i was taken and it, that kind of production also how billy rides that with her yes. her performance very reminiscent of the last album and that that's exciting that's the cool shit that like i want from billy and phineas and i understand maybe she doesn't want to, they want to do that all the time that's cool but like that's what like really like wows me when they do stuff like that song yeah i that that will track immediately i i put on repeat because i just thought that was such cool production when it cuts out around the chorus and she like sings in a really high key it just like adds such a it sounds like almost like primal in a sense which is just so cool and the way the drums are with it is just perfect um yeah and you know therefore i am is really fun and boppy and that kind of actually reminds me of um the second track i didn't change my number that also stood out to me as being pretty fun you know that starts off like a snarl in a sense but then it has that like cool almost just kind of like toned back like soft r&b-ish to it which you just kind of like bounce to it which is really fun and then probably the track that grabbed me the most is the title track um it's the second to last one on the album and it's really soft and i was kind of just like toning out and then there's that part where like the guitars and just and the drums just come in overly distorted and just really strong and her voice like goes up a power and it just like I found that totally gripping and uh, I thought that was great. And, you know, you, like you said, you pair that with, I think some really introspective lyrics, some commentary on the uh, commoditization and sexualization of pop, female pop stars throughout this, you know, there's a track named my, not my responsibility, which is pretty clear what is, you know, that's getting yeah. at the idea that's not up to her to control, you know, change who she is for you. And I, I just, I think she just is a singular talent because I right. also found the most of the town, the tone down tracks pretty fun or at least enjoyable to listen to, which I, I gotta say, like after listening to someone like Clara last week, which Clara was fine and she does a lot of toned down stuff too. I find this a lot more memorable and you just see that she's, that Billy is just operating at such a higher level than almost anyone else who yeah. does this. Yeah. In terms of like the lighter stuff, I, I liked NDA a lot, which was one of mm-hmm. the singles. 
Um, I, I think uh, Lost Cause, which I believe has the video, that one's pretty fun as well. Um, yeah, I like Lost Cause a lot. Yeah, you know, I, I, I actually production wise, I, I got to note the uh, kick drum transition from NDA into their Am was quite seamless and sounded really hmm. good. The not my responsibility track. That was actually um th- th- those vocals were part of that video she like put played at some her shows. Um, so that actually had already been heard, but she actually only did that I think three times before that tour stopped due to COVID. So we had actually mm-hmm. heard that in a greater part. Um, the thing is, it's like that like the message like it's it's like a really like Frank interlude, right? But like obviously, I would love if that was somehow into like a song people would hear more than once, you know, versus just yeah. kind of being this like straightforward speech but right either way um i guess it is nice to hear because she has been that has been a big part of her celebrity of late unfortunately mm-hmm. uh just want to note because we didn't say it she's 19 yeah um pretty crazy to be dropping albums this uh strong and coherent and thoughtful at 19 so yeah uh, gonna be talking about billy a lot so. yeah and she just had that um apple uh, documentary come out yeah. earlier in the year um yeah v- very interesting right like and we talked about this with the last time but it's like her whole rise to the industry and the connections she didn't didn't have and everything about it right like like this documentary like they were kind of filming everything the whole time it's like they kind of knew and yeah. um something i actually just learned is like I, I knew her parents were actors but i didn't know that um her mom was actually uh the voice of a famous character in the Mass Effect video games, which I love. And I was like, oh, that's so funny that that voice actor's kid is fucking Billie Eilish. <laughs> that, know, that's is, crazy. Just random. Just random. Uh, yeah, so I, I think there's definitely stuff to like. Um, it's definitely a start to change. But there's still a lot to appreciate, and that, that just kind of speaks to what Billy and Phineas can do, you know? Uh, imagine what they would do when they actually work with anyone else. Like, imagine if Jack Antonoff got his hands on Billie Eilish. You know, he would love to work <laughs> with her as the probably the the biggest pop artist he hasn't female pop artist he hasn't yet worked with. You know, of late. Yeah, yeah. I mean that that would be really cool. I mean, I, of course, I'd love to see like a Lord Billie Eilish like collab of some sort. They yeah. just feel like kindred souls in a way to me. So maybe we'll see that, but. Um, one last thing i think we should know given yeah. given what we've just been talking about uh billy got in some controversy when like an old clip surfaced of her lip syncing to uh, a, a asian slur i believe it was an odd future song and she quickly um apologized and was very remorseful about that even though she was quite young when the clip was from a stark change from how the baby acted past week just thing to keep in mind good note <laughs> and why don't we move on to from music to movies jungle cruise dave i know this is one of your favorite rides at disney i know you were like man i really need a movie about the background of jungle cruise i mean the i'm joking but like the real thing is like they're redoing it right and they are like kind of making it uh you know related to the movie as they're like updating this theme park ride is that right mm-hmm. yeah. uh yeah i don't believe like a big thing with their, their original iteration of the ride was just like the caricatures of the natives and stuff. And like, you'd see yeah. anecdotes of people that used to work at the park and you kind of see it on the faces of uh, 
people on the ride that weren't white and had their kind of expression would change when they would see this kind of like otherization of these like native folks and whatnot. So in general, just a important thing to to change to make your ride uh, just more welcoming. It's not like it's changing the enjoyability of the ride in any way. So good to see. And you know, it's funny, like everyone's like, this is the first, uh, first ride movie from Disney. They've been remaking all their animated movies and now they need more IP. So they're going to get to the rides. And we know that Scarlett Johansson tower of terror reboot may or not be, may or may not be happening, but kind of forgot parts of the Caribbean is actually based off a ride too. Hmm, that's true. Yeah, you know, it, obviously, it's, so it's, long ago, two thousand three. Been a I was gonna say it's so long ago. I kind of forgot that the ride came first. Yeah, man. Huh. That that's like jogging my memory now. Also, I don't really think about the pirate movies very much anymore. But yeah, those first so, couple, not too bad. First one's first awesome. one's great. First trilogy is quite enjoyable, but uh, the fifth one came out in twenty seventeen, and that's the last of them. And Let's talk about a reboot. I think Margot Robbie was perhaps attached to that as of late, but Pirates of the Caribbean definitely had its run, made a lot of money, and Disney definitely wanted to have Jungle Cruise maybe not be a Pirate Flow franchise, perhaps be like a national treasure, I saw as something thrown out there as a comp. And now that's coming out during the pandemic, you know, it's hard to have box office expectations. But either way, the movie is out. Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Emily Blunt, Jesse Plemons. Uh, and that's that's just the top three. I mean, this cast is pretty deep, man. I mean, uh, Edgar Ramirez is playing yeah. the, uh, the, I guess, like the kind of villain. I don't know if you can really call him a villain. I don't know, kind right. of. Uh, yeah. You know, and then you have uh, Paul Giamatti just really playing a very bit role, showing up for like two or three scenes, uh, obviously doing like one day of shooting, you know, just in and out. Um, I thought this movie... Jungle Cruise 2021 was just fine. <laughs> I don't know. It was exactly kind of what I expected. It, um, I think there were some moments that I was a little bit like, oh, this is a lot more enjoyable than I expected. But overall, it's just very Disney cookie cutter to me. You know, mm. um, I think the nice thing is that it's centered around Emily Blunt as the protagonist and um, you know, this doctor, you know, in the early 19th or 20th century. And, uh, you know, kind of, I think, highlighting the way women were treated back then and and putting a female protagonist as a capable person in this is a right. nice and thoughtful touch. But, you know, overall, I just kind of thought it was meh. What did you think? Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it's a family film. Yep. And it's like at least watchable for families and the, the parents will not be pulling their hair out watching this the way they would be watching like a Paw Patrol movie or something. But mm-hmm. still has a lot of flaws. And ultimately, I think it's just like the characterization of The Rock and Blunt's characters. I still found like quite like bland. Like there's so much CGI oh, yeah. in this film. I couldn't help but this feel like they were just playing themselves. Yep. Like I love Emily Blunt. She's been in some amazing movies given some great performances but this she was even even though the character at least has like there's some inspiration to it at least or aspirational nature to it but it i don't know like her dynamic with the rock was kind of blah to me and the rock was just kind of doing what he always does and like he he's a charismatic guy but he just 
he doesn't know how to tap into different parts of his abilities as an actor. He always kind of does the same thing he always does. And I guess the thing that I like most about this is that there actually were some kind of like twists and turns with our narrative. I wasn't expecting everything that was coming. I also wasn't think, trying to think like 10 steps ahead of where Jungle Cruise is going to take me. You know, I wasn't, I was just kind of along for the ride on our, on our lazy river here. But yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's, it's whatever, honestly. The, the funniest part is you get Jesse Plemons literally arguing with a bunch of bees in a submarine. I know. You can't get it's that great. anywhere else, so that's something. Jesse Plemons was by far the best part of this movie to me, just because he was, um, he was on like level a hundred every time he's on screen, and I just did not get that same feeling from Emily Blunt and The Rock. I gotta say, it, your your point on the on The Rock just being The Rock in every movie now, it, it definitely true. I did for a second give the movie a lot of credit because I was like, oh, you know, they're kind of making The Rock a shitty person in this movie, you know backstabbing two-timing these people the whole way but then you find out oh no he's not really doing that because he's uh right. he's this like mythical creature who is yeah. stopped he's cursed you know, spell yeah. i was like oh okay well there you go that's that that shows that he's not actually a bad person and I, the most impressive thing in this whole movie is when the rock gets shot or yes. stabbed or falls backwards and he throws the perfect throw mid-air like a hundred yards to Emily Blunt with that like stone or arrowhead or whatever it was. Arrowhead, I just yep. like lost my mind. That was like, it was like uh, some Patrick Mahomes type shit, man. Yeah. Unbelievable. That's Dom Toretto diving across the highway to catch <laughs> Letty and land on a moving vehicle. Yeah. Incredible <laughs> stuff right there. Um, yeah. I, I don't even know if there's a lot to talk about on this. I mean, any, any like scenes or, or, parts that i guess you really liked or that stood out yeah, i mentioned the b stuff that was just amusing yeah. um i guess like the reveal of when you get the cursed conquistadors or whatever <laughs> and like how like the effects of like how they're cursed and how they've been changed and then and then the reveal of how like they like get sucked back and they leave the river and then you learn about the rock's true identity like i thought that that was kind of fun i guess and like like the rock it's like you see him fucking fall hard after getting stabbed i'm watching that i'm like hmm they really killed the rock halfway through damn didn't expect <laughs> that huh and they bring him back and he's like i'm alive and i'm like god damn he really just said he's back to life at least they're like no he's he's like immortal i was like okay okay that's cool that's cool that was a, i think that was a good way to reveal it you know like i'll mm -hmm. give him that but like the last like 30 minutes when like you get to the um tears of the moon or whatever and like everything's revealed in like the last set piece it's like i was pretty just because i wasn't invested in the narrative i wasn't invested in the character so that felt pretty bland to me you know um and trying to like make the cursed characters more sympathetic i just don't think you get enough time with them to really like invest there and in fact like the effects that like what edgar ramirez remind me a lot of the effects for um uh javier bardem's uh was it Blackbeard character? His villain character in Pirates 5. Those effects kind of mm. look similar to me as far yeah. as theme, theme park Disney rides go. But yeah, it's um, it's a, it, it's a kid's movie. It's tough to take much out of it, but I, I want more out of The Rock when he's in the lead. Yeah, I um, I think that the 
the takeaway for me is they came very close to doing some very courageous things for a Disney kids movie and then just like backed off it. However, yeah, one moment that I thought was really nice was the way that they handled uh, Jack Whitehall's character, McGregor Houghton and his sexuality where, you know, they, they weren't, I guess, explicit about it, but the way that the rock responded was I think a good model for children just kind of being like, Oh, okay. Whatever. Like that kind of thing. And, uh, Overall, that was nice, but yeah, I think know, I actually just realized what my favorite part was. It was when uh, when you, we learned that the Rock is a uh, immortal, and then Emily Blunt has to take the uh, like spear knife out of his back because he's been impaled, and they just go back and back and forth with each other for a good minute, making consistent sexual innuendo references. Uh-huh. It was actually like really funny. I was like, wow, I didn't think yeah. you'd get that in the kids' movie because that's going to go over a hundred percent of kids' heads. But that's actually a great moment for the parents. I, you know, this, you just kind of jog my memory when they have to like go underwater and, and Emily Blink is stuck in that trap and, mm. you know, Rock has to kind of like coach her through how to get out of there. Um, she could definitely have fit through like several different openings in that trap, which mm. I w- was just kind of like, oh, yeah. this is a bit of a, a plot hole for me. Um, also, I just feel like there was so much like additional bs with this man like the whole storyline with paul giamatti i mean what was even the point like why was he in this i don't know yeah and <laughs> there's actually some funny quotes from giamatti about playing the character wanting to like be a guy with a monocle chewing on a cigar with an accent and he actually gave a very similar quote about a different role he did i forget what movie it was it was something similar though he does like a really bit part and it's like, is this just Giamatti's thing? It's like he'll just pay, take some like quick like scale pay and show up for a day if he gets to be a weird, weird like out there character. Because if so, more power to him, man. Just yeah, take, take I, a I quick like check that. and have fun. That's acting. Oh, <laughs> oh man, crazy. Uh, yeah, Jungle Cruise, good for kids, good for families. If you don't fit in that category, you can probably skip. But yeah, Dave, advise that. You were you were putting in work this weekend. You made it to three movies, including mm-hmm. Matt Damon's newest movie, Stillwater. Yeah, tell me about this. So Stillwater played a con, just came out wide release from Focus Features, and it's a classic Hollywood star vehicle starring Matt Damon. And perhaps this should have come out a little later in the year because this has awards. Um, aspirations aspirations particularly around uh matt damon as a best actor candidate and we already know the focus is doing some like awards events for it so they're kicking that off in earnest um so that's starting soon but uh yeah stillwater i um you know going in i was like oh that's exciting because this is a movie that was supposed to come out last year we knew it was a damon vehicle fun to fun to see uh in general and also from Tom McCarthy, his first like big notable movie um, since Spotlight, of course, which you know he got many plots for, including Best Picture. Mm-hmm. So a lot of pedigree going in, and also like just I think things to like, like this is a French co-production. This was shot in Marseille, so it's nice to look at. And uh, I like the movie a lot, honestly. Um, I think there's a lot of meta conversation to talk about this, but I think the movie itself it's quite long. It's about two hours twenty minutes probably could trim that down a bit but just in general the whole like gruff roughneck conservative american goes to foreign land to try and 
rescue his daughter. Like, it's just like a really simple premise that we're familiar with, but it's quite likable. Like, there's shades of, like, Taken once in a while. There's shades of, like, noir elements to it. And perhaps the fact that the movie doesn't commit to any one lane might be a detriment, again, given the runtime. But I quite liked it. You know, the premise is that uh, Abigail Breslin plays Damon's character's uh, Bill Baker's daughter. And she's been in prison for five years already of a nine-year sentence for murdering her college roommate. She was uh, studying abroad in Marseille. And hmm, Damon sounds keeps, familiar. Yeah, and Damon keeps going overseas once in a while to go see her, you know, meet her, in, meet her in jail and, like, do her laundry and stuff and talk to her. And, like, then the inciting incident, of course, is that when he goes to visit, like, any normal time, she gives him some, like, new evidence that might be able to prove her innocence. And then Damon decides to stick around Marseille and try and get that done. And like I said, there are moments where you like feel like it's going to go the taken route. There are moments where you think it's going to go like the noir investigative route. But what I was most struck with was the warmth of it because uh, Damon's character, Bill Baker, uh, befriends uh, a French local named uh, 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 Virginie played by Camille Cotin, who is the French actress who is the lead of the hit drama Call My Agent. He, hmm. he uh, befriends her and her young daughter, Maya, and she's a single mom. Bill is a single dad. They kind of have this kindred spirit. They become like this platonic family, and he starts to live with them and take care of, uh, help take care of the kid while he's sticking around trying to free his daughter. That stuff is really good, and you get really invested in that relationship. Uh, the little kid is like super cute, but like the da- dynamic between Damon and the kid, and that Damon and uh, Cotin is is really good, and like I love that honestly, and that's why I think the movies were really successful, and I quite like it. Like I said, it's a little long, but I would definitely recommend it, um, purely for I think the star vehicle na- nature of it, and like yeah, it's like not like sh- it's not like an amazingly like shot film. Like we're gonna talk about the Green Knight in a second, which is definitely one of those. Stillwater's pretty workmanlike, but you're still set in Marseille, like I said. So I think there's a lot of ingredients to like here, and you know, like the political nature of it. Um, Damon playing a character who's conservative in the modern times, and also very American has American identity. It doesn't fully commit to that sort of thing, but I kind of like what it did. So. I would recommend Stillwater, but it's been a bit of a talking point uh, since it came out due to its um, uh, similarities due to its uh, source material inspiration, as I'm sure you're yeah. aware. Yeah, as I mentioned, the the story of um, what happened what happens with Allison sounds very familiar, and that's because um, pretty much is the Amanda Knox story, it sounds like, in premise. And that's that's the thing, right? So this past weekend, a Stillwater came out, Amanda Knox took to Twitter and kind of, you know, went on a uh, tweet thread about uh, how her story, which if you don't know the Amanda Knox story, she was convicted of murdering her roommate while she was studying abroad, um, served four years of a 26 year sentence and then was exonerated. Um, and a, I forget, I'm forgetting the guy's name. I think it's like Jude or something like that. Yeah, some like local burglar was yeah. convicted. Uh, evident, DNA evidence uh, exonerated her and uh, Smuzz was convicted. Um, but still, the, when, you, when you hear the, word, the name Amanda Knox, 
it's associated with killing her roommate unfortunately yeah. and that, that's wrong you know that's that's not the story at all um and so there, there's a lot of controversy around the commoditization and people benefiting off the story and retelling the story especially because i think this was loosely based off of what a story from variety is that correct yeah 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 keep going and uh and you know she's uh, man and knox obviously is not receiving any money off this but person who wrote the story is you know benefiting from this uh you know uh it, it's quite interesting i think because um you know it's a gray area people write stories and write yeah. adaptations of stories all the time stealing from real life things that happen yeah. fictionalizing it's it the news right but at the same time uh, this is I, I think anyone that's aware of the Amanda Knox situation, it was a very public criminal trial. Um, it would be hard to watch the water and not connect those dots. So where, where do you stand in yeah. the whole situation? So I think an important thing to note is that Stillwater is focused on the dad. It's not focused on the Amanda Knox stand-in. Abigail Breslin is a supporting character in the film, clearly. I think the, the biggest... I think like the best point that Amanda Knox makes is that McCarthy invoked like the, the Amanda Knox story. And I believe some of the press around the film also made that connection watching the movie. It's a very thoughtful war movie. I don't think it's exploitative at all. And I think her best points around to like, maybe just don't like directly make the connection when it's about like a individual person, because as she was saying, which I think is another good point. It's like, when you call it the Monica Lewinsky scandal, you don't actually honor the power dynamics going on. It's more important, I think, to call it the Bill Clinton affair. And that's how Amanda Knox was saying, when you invoke my name, you're kind of still like, you know, using my negative reputation that's been proven to be false. So I'm very sympathetic to that. At the same time, I think it's okay to adapt something like this without actually consulting with your like sourcing like this happens all the time it's going to keep happening and perhaps just don't openly invoke it when you're promoting the film and i think it, it'll yeah. be totally okay because otherwise it's like yeah like this is like this this kind of thing is going to happen and again the movie i think the movie is very thoughtful and and and, and warm and like i don't i don't i don't think like people like like but it, but it's complicated so I, I obviously you understand her point of view and why she thinks that way but like in terms of like, I don't, I don't think it's going to change like how the industry moves or anything. Yeah. I don't, I don't think it will either. And I, I think I do agree with her in the idea that, you know, if the story is so close to her situation that it then, uh, you know, kind of misconstrues the way people understand the case, it's really, really unfair to her. It's just a really d tough situation because like like you said this is just the news being retold and it, it's a she's an unfortunate like player in all of this right really uh really awful circumstances that you know that came about for her and obviously feel for her she did uh offer to have matt damon and the, the director on her podcast i think mm -hmm. uh to talk it out and they both declined but i would like to you know i find matt damon to be pretty thoughtful although you know, a story about 
his daughter yeah. convincing him not to use the the f slur towards the LGBTQ community as of yeah. just a couple months ago. <laughs> he came out. This he's weekend. open in his his gaps, which I yeah. I, I guess I find it endearing that he's like he's a fifty year old dude who knows that like he's not perfect. Yeah. And sometimes and, he says things that he doesn't need to say, but I always have found that he seems to be more or less coming from the a good place. But he's certainly not perfect. I mean, he said some stupid shit when downsizing came out, too. That it seems to be just what he does. Yeah. So I would like to hear him, you know, talk about it and just kind of like right. be thoughtful about it. But I don't know. We'll see. Definitely an interesting aspect to it all. But Dave, you, you alluded to the last movie we're going to be talking about. And I got to be honest, uh, you know, we've seen some really good movies this year already. We're gearing up for some more. This is at the top of my list. The Green Knight. Number one, baby. Let's fucking go. Fucking blew me away, dude. It absolutely blew me away. And <laughs> it's funny because I was trying to think about like, man, what, what was I really looking for from the Green Knight? You know, we, we saw the trailers. We, we, thought, we thought the trailer looked pretty good. This like medieval mm-hmm. fantasy, mm-hmm. you know, based on a, a poem from long, long ago. Mm-hmm. You know, Arthurian, Arthurian times. But didn't really know what i wanted out of this right i think i wanted it to be exciting and and kind of weird because you know you see like like the giants and stuff you know it's going to be some out there fantasy stuff but this far exceeded my expectations not only i think in the visuals like you alluded to just like absolutely stunning but man this this is like weird weird like this is like some out there shit that I just I left the theater and I think I've been trying to like get my head around like the themes of it all and there's just like so much that's tied up but it's still such a cohesive story that it mm-hmm. isn't impacted at all. Just really impressed with this. What did you think of the Green Knight? Yeah, it's honestly one of the most like purpose purposive existential things I've ever seen. Like it is so mm-hmm. existential and metaphysical the entire time and yet it is still enthralling scene to mm-hmm. scene. Like it, it, it's crazy how confident the Green Knight is in not being a traditional coming of age epic fantasy story. It's so not that, and it's so happy to not be that, and yet mm-hmm. it still consistently wraps you. It, it, I was I was blown away. I, I absolutely loved it. Also, my number one movie of the year so far. You know, it's a movie we knew was coming back in 2020 of course a24 sat on this held it for theatrical release and they knew what they, they were, had they knew what they had and they, they 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 it worked for them this was their fourth highest grossing opening weekend ever for a24 despite the pandemic uh, about seven million and i believe the cinema score was like c c plus or something which sounds bad but for a24 that's actually on the high end so this is in good position to have a nice box office per their standards and then dominate on VOD. So I'm very happy that this is going to get its get just desserts because yeah. it, 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 it's, it's earned. It's so good. You know, and just before we kind of get into the nitty gritty of what made this such a great movie, um, I could see this being a really strong box office. Obviously when it gets to like awards time, people are catching up. I could see people like being like, holy shit, 
this movie's fucking great because and, and you know we should shout out first david lowry is a director we've talked about before he really broke out in 2017 with a ghost story we yeah. talked about the old man the gun in 2018 with robert redford i think that was, i think it was his, one of his last films it was his last movie last yeah. and that also being a movie that we both really liked i think about that movie a lot i should rewatch that soon but um lowry just continues to kind of put out these these a24 type movies that just really capture us and man i think to start dev patel is just phenomenal start to finish in this you know where he is in the start of this movie as this like you know rambunctious kind of just out there looking to like enjoy life kid not really having a direction and that's the thing is he he does kind of look like a kid in this you know he, he's like what mid-30s maybe even yeah. 40 and slumdog millionaire he, was 2008 crazy like, and and he looks like very young when this starts and the way he just kind of glides in and out of these scenes levels of confidence going up and down his interactions his mannerisms from one scene to another the way uh what who is who, who is in that scene where he like finds the he's walking through the field of the battle and that, that Barry, Keoghan. Him. Barry Keoghan yes from um Dunkirk fame uh it, it, that the way that they they play off each other is just phenomenal you see him kind of feeling out Joel Edgerton and mm. like their their scenes are just really electric and then of course Every scene between him and, and the queen, Leisha Vikander, is just like total dynamite, dude. And she's she in a good movie again, dude. She's back. She's <laughs> like, back. <laughs> that was the thing. Is I saw, her, I saw her show up and I was like, oh, this better be good. I can't take another hit for Vikander. And, and man, it's it's so good. She's yeah. she's so good in this. Um, hey. Go ahead. Yeah, so just, just reading up on the Green Knight, so obviously it invokes it in the opening title card but it's based on sir uh, gawain and the green knight by anonymous which is just part of the greater arthurian legend it's not explicitly said in the green knight film but sean harris king character is king arthur and gawain's mom the sorcerer is actually like morgan lefay like the chief antagonist of king arthur mm-hmm. and the green knight is is already the character so like it's all like kind of like twists and spins on that story and I saw some people like, oh, they totally changed it, blah, blah, blah. But like, there's tons of scholarship about the Green Knight story and its interpretations. Like, you can read, like, J.R.R. Tolkien himself toiled over the meaning of the Green Knight for decades, like, publicly. Like, it is, like, actually, like, one of the richest texts in terms of, like, you know, maybe, like, old school, old school texts go and Arthurian types of texts go. So, no one should have any problem with David Lowry deciding to change things up. Like Gawain isn't actually like the entitled heir uh, in this film. Like you said, he's, he's quite different, but the whole, I think the meditation on the movie, and I think this is where I kind of settle with it. When you see the whole thing is like, like there's like the chivalry stuff, but also like, like what's your purpose? And like, like do you do you like, do you care about your own honor and stuff and like your own, like do you want to live your own life even if you, you didn't even keep your word and stuff like that i think that's kind of like where you start to have it distill because that's where like gawain's like like conclusions go you know like it has an absolutely thrilling finale it's like 15 oh, yeah. minutes long no dialogue 
And then you realize at the end, it snaps back. That was all on his head of, of going mm-hmm. foreseeing a future if he did a certain certain thing, certain way. And having it snap back, I was like, that was fucking genius. Honestly, yep. I loved it. Because, I mean, I would have been satisfied if it ended that way. I was like, mm-hmm. ah, you know, he didn't make the right call. He fucked up and he kind of had a shitty, she went out in a shitty way. Damn, that's not the most satisfying ending either. Yeah. No, they have it snap back. And then, then he just kind of a quick gun ends like soon after. I was like, wow. Like it's so thoughtful, but also so open for interpretation, like at every turn. That that's the thing is, I feel like I've like gone back and forth on like what themes stand out to me most. You know, you kind of just mentioned like, what's your purpose? How do you want to live your life? The values you want to live by, and that ending that kind of juxtaposes that. Whether he makes the choice to run from the Green Knights game or to stay and you know have honor within the game his head's being lopped off either way. It's about like, how do you like, what do you want your story to say about you? You know, like, what do you want the, the legends to be in this case? But Mm -hmm. then I think also like the, the themes around like love and family really stand out to me. You know, the, the whole Joel Edgerton uh, scene with, with Leisha Vikander being his wife and them being in that weird castle and like, him kind of questioning him like well, what do you most want in life oh to have honor oh and then how do you get that just by you know going to this chapel yeah oh well i'm glad it's so easy for you and then he's just it's, kind of like sitting in his journey yeah come back <laughs> on just your like, return home yep and then and then you have vikander it, it, it that whole sequence is just like a dream the whole thing mm. it just feels like a dream and you're just kind of like there's so much at play here i just found it you know really really thought-provoking and you mentioned the visuals i mean uh so i picked the the background i have behind me it's like this like for those who are listening on audio it's dev patel and i I forgot what part of the movie this was but it's like this like orange glow i think it was like right after he had um i think it's like right after he left the um edgerton right yeah edgerton he's like right before he gets to the green chapel i think exactly yeah but there's so many scenes and, and the way that the camera lingers and just slowly moves around the scenery or just lets you chew up what's happening, whether it's him riding away from the castle to start the journey mm-hmm. um, or when he gets tied up by Kyogen and it kind of pans around and then yeah. shows him as a skeleton that just stayed there or then it pans back and, he, yeah. Yeah, and he's like, okay, I actually have to get up and like figure a way out of this. Like there's just so many brilliant little touches lowry just really impressed with this the the whole time yeah and he he said a few times that the shoot was like pretty miserable they shot this like in the irish countryside but it was fucking worth it man it's gorgeous anytime dev's just riding a horse walking in the woods it's just like such like vibrant colors the way they like color correct and like the, the the verdant verdant scenes in the green like it, it it just looks gorgeous constantly and uh, you know from the jump like once he goes goes on his quest i loved how it felt like a quest like you know it's like and like again it looks awesome the whole time he like gets to the fork in the road and he looks around and he's like hmm i think i go this way and he goes that way gets to the battlefield and like nothing's explained you have no idea why there's huge large-scale battlefield just happened not that far from where he lives and mm-hmm. 
then he encounters Kyogen, and Kyogen is a perfect character to have as like oh the guy God. you meet on your quest because he's a, a really neurotic actor, and it was he's it was amazing, you know. Yeah. Have later on where like the first step when you start getting metaphysical, and he encounters Aaron Kellerman, who we've been talking about a lot lately, of course, and she's a fucking ghost, and he's mm-hmm. like, "Are you a ghost? Huh?" But like the, the way it ends when like she's and he's like, "Are you real?" and he and she's like, "What's that matter? What's I just difference? want my head." Or what's, yeah, the, what's the difference? The, I, what's the I just difference? need my head. That's yeah, it, it's great. And, and then he dives down to the water, and it, it, you know, it's that like red glow as he's like swimming, and it's just like, just so I don't know, really mesmerizing. Um, also, just shout out cute animals and movies. We didn't talk mm. about the uh, the leopard, or is it a leopard? Or is it a jaguar, leopard? maybe. Yeah, jaguar in Jungle Cruise, but also the fox in this, who was you know his mom kind of like guiding him. I yeah. thought was was really cool. Um, and yeah, man, I, I feel like everybody that pops up, you know, Sean Harris it was like, I think a perfect choice for the King yeah. because I, I just associate him with his character and all the mission impossible. So you right. just kind of expect something really like sinister. eerie to happen. Yeah. And, and it's not overtly sinister, but almost like the way he like frames all of this for Gawain kind of is like this, like driving force to his story is like kind of sinister when you look back mm-hmm. and then having, uh, Katie Dickey from Game of Thrones uh, fame, you know, uh, who was that that kid I was sucking on her tit when he was like eight years old? Oh, uh, Robin Aaron. Yes, Robin Aaron. Yes. Uh, you know, just having those two, it's like you I just felt like that was like perfect casting. But this movie just rules, man. Like it's, yeah. it's really just great. And I, I like I like the, the voice work, too, like when the Green Knight shows up and then um. Mm-hmm. the queen gets like possessed and you hear like reading out the letter in the different voice later on when the fox talks for the first time like yep. both those really stand out examples of voice work um i really like this scene when when he encounters the all the bald giants kind of yeah. reminds me of like the blade runner 2049 hologram scene like this like the mm. starkness of the scale and whatnot um the green knight himself the design um Awesome. Which, which I believe is pretty original. It's almost like he was a fucking ent from Lord of the Rings. It's like this tree creature. Um, and how like when he put the when he puts the axe down and like it starts to like make moss and stuff. Like there's so many yeah. awesome touches, you know. Uh, man. And honestly, I mean, you mentioned like already how is it kind of like dreamlike. But like when he gets to Edgerton's estate, mm-hmm. and then you find out his wife is also played by Alicia Vikander. Like I that to me that like blew my mind. Like I, I believe like everyone's kind of selling on it's just Vikander playing two different characters, and it's like kind of in Guy Wayne's head they're not actually connected. But like when mm-hmm. I was watching, I was like, what the fuck does this mean? Why is she here yeah. too? <laughs> Dude, I had the same I had the same response, but also I I was getting to the point where I was kind of like, ah, kind of a thankless role for Vikander, and then she gets yeah. to show up and be this yes. like mesmerizing, totally like perfect looking queen in this like. I don't know, like maze of like a, a maze Castle. of fuckery in this place, and yeah. I'm just like, holy shit, this is amazing. So and a great, just a great contrast too from her being like a pixie cut uh, brothel member. Yeah, you know? very, but also very different. like like very sweet, straightforward, like kind character. You know, like it's it's a great juxtaposition of those two. So yeah, man. Um, I feel like this is a movie I'm gonna watch again. Probably have like five more takeaways, but 
uh, I really hope this gets some awards to love because it rules. So it does. Yeah, definitely a movie I want to like really stump for and get people to see because it's not um, conventional. So it's definitely not for everyone. Like there are film nerd qualities to this. And I think they're just tri- the fact that it's like not the most, I don't want to say coherent, but it doesn't like directly tell you how to feel about things. Mm-hmm. And that might not be satisfying to everyone. That's the kind of stuff that just inherently isn't for everyone. So yeah. that's why you're going to get a reaction where some people just quite dislike the film. And that's fine, of course, if that's your reaction. But to me, there's just, there's just so much to recommend just from the craft angle from the visuals of it all, just the whole experience of watching the movie. And to me, the unknown is what's so appealing because again, this is unlike basically anything we get. And those closing lines, well done, my green knight. Now off with your head. Just like (laughs) perfect. This movie is ah, great. Anyways, this is a long pod today, Dave. What should everybody be uh, listening to or watching for next week? So the Suicide Squad's coming out from DC and getting really strong reviews, which is exciting. James Gunn, yeah. jumping in, saves the day. Yeah. Also new music from Nas, King's, King's Disease 2, the sequel to his Grammy Award-winning uh, King's Disease. New album from Tinashe, and perhaps a new album from Mr. Kanye West. Oh, we'll believe it when we see it. <laughs> uh ever evergreen end to the pod right there uh, but anyways uh nostalgia pod on twitter soundcloud.com and youtube.com slash nostalgia pod we'll catch you all next week yeah.